This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Kathleen Hearn Kroschel has followed a unique path full of courage, tenacity, and a love of theater. She served as a county court judge in Puebla, always placing significant importance on human connection. Devoted to family, Kathleen balanced motherhood as a single parent with the demands of law school and ultimately her legal career. Most recently, she served as the Colorado Bar Association president, emphasizing relationships across greater Colorado and with young and new attorneys. Kathleen shared her journey with Courtney Holm and Nicole Sparraza. Let's listen to how this avid theater fan cultivated storytelling as a leadership technique, balanced her family with her professional life, and emphasized the focus of the CBA across the state. Welcome to our voices today. I'm Courtney Holm. I am an attorney at Courtney Holman Associates in Edwards, Colorado, focusing on mediation, family law, criminal defense, and civil litigation. And my co-host today is... My name is Nicole Sparaza. I am a family law and civil litigation solo practitioner in the Denver metro area. And we are joined today by Kathleen Hearn Kroschel, who is so many, many things, but is a former judge, a former Colorado Bar Association president, a wife, a mother, a grandmother, and boy, a lot of other things. Let's talk a little bit about who you were, who you are, and who you're going to be. And let's start with who you were. What was it like growing up, Kathleen? Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I feel honored, humbled, and amazed. I'm even here on a podcast based on my history. Who would have ever thought that I would be where I am today. So let me tell you just a little bit about who I am and who I was. I was born in Sandusky, Ohio. I was raised in the west suburbs of Cleveland. I came from a stable, good family home. Uh, My father was an office manager for a manufacturing company in Cleveland, and his hobby was an amateur naturalist. My mother was a stay-at-home mother, but she uh, got very involved in community volunteerism. She uh, also was an avid follower of politics and government, and she worked to instill a pride in her family's founding role and roots in this country. My parents were college educated and strongly believed in education. I grew up in a typical American suburban lifestyle of the 1950s and 60s. But the peace and tranquility of this life was shattered by the murder of Marilyn Shepard. I was only seven at the time, but I was well aware of what was going on. The Dr. Sam Shepard case is an interesting case in the legal history of the United States. It was discussed around the dinner table It was a trial that attracted attention all over the United States and the world. Eventually, the case having been appealed and being the basis for a U.S. Supreme Court decision, Shepard v. Maxwell, resulted in a second trial. I'm now in high school. Ethley Bailey, a very famous lawyer of the time, handled the second trial, and I followed it avidly as a uh, high school student and a member of the community where it had happened, having known people that were peripherally involved. So Kathleen, was the, was the Sam Shepard case, is that the same one that uh, the movie The Fugitive is loosely based off of? It is. And so this is something your family was just talking about around the dinner table? Well, we were talking about it around the dinner table. It was in the Cleveland um, media. Coverage was rampant. And interestingly enough, the uh, Shepard v. Maxwell case is a case, the importance of it is First Amendment of freedom of the press balanced against an individual Sixth Amendment right to a fair trial and 14th Amendment right to due process. 
So did that have a big impact on you as far as choosing to go into law or did you always want to be a lawyer? No, I didn't always want to be a lawyer. Uh, uh, my initial plan based on how I grew up was to finish college and hopefully marry and be a wife and mother. Eventually I became a high school dropout. I was going to a private Catholic girls school and became pregnant during my senior year and I was now no longer welcome in my high school. Hmm. I married at 17. Frankly, a court order was required to get a marriage license in Ohio at that time because both uh, my future husband and I were under 18 and even parental consent would not get the trick done to get a marriage license. So we had to go to court before a juvenile judge and have a short hearing to get a marriage license, which we did. And the lesson I learned from that was that a judge's words truly matter. And I'm not going to say more about it other than that was a big lesson at age 17 that a judge's words really matter. Kathleen, was that your first experience in, in front of a judge in, in a courtroom? Correct, it was. And it was um, pretty powerful. Hmm. I was scared to death. As I said, the judge's words really made a strong impression. Anyhow, to sort of fast forward, I got married. Uh, my first child was born when I was just 18. She was actually born on the same day that I would have graduated from high school. So here I am with a new baby and all my friends are graduating from my high school class. I had my second child by the time I was uh, just 19, 361 days later. Wow. That, that's a busy couple of years. <laughs> it was. I had a few uh, nightmares along the way about how many bottles I was going to sterilize and how many diapers I was going to be washing because that was the day when you still had to sterilize bottles hmm. and there were not any disposable diapers. <laughs> so, so after my second child was born, I looked to see how I could get a high school diploma uh, I'm old enough that that was before the day of the GED, and I had to um, find a program that would take someone who was now over 19 and a dropout, and I finally found a program in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma, and I commuted to night school to finish high school. As soon as I could, turned around and applied to a community college to try to start my college career. Kathleen, when you're talking about having two very young kids and taking the time at nighttime to commute, how did you find that energy? How did you keep going on not just the toughest of days, but, but every day? I mean, having two young kids plus being gone at night for school, I, I can't imagine the toll that took. Well, the good thing about age is you forget some of the hardships that you went through. But I will say I was determined. My parents were very supportive. My husband was reasonably supportive. Sometimes you just have to make up your mind to do what you have to do to get something done. And I think that's really what I did. There was a fun piece to it because once I got to the high school courses, there was the social piece of the teacher and the other students. And I learned an interesting lesson. And that was that many of the students that were in night school had reading issues. And part of the reason they had dropped out of school was because they had problems reading. Hmm. And the teacher would often call on me to read passages in the classes. And so I did a lot of the reading because I was able to read quite well. And so many of my classmates weren't. And the one thing I learned was they didn't understand punctuation. So even if they could say the words, they wouldn't get the meaning because they didn't understand commas, sentences, paragraphs. They would just run everything together. Not all of them, obviously, but some of them. But it was an interesting lesson in what it means to be able to read but not understand. Did you... Did you think about that when you were writing orders for any self-represented parties, how they might interpret 
even the punctuation in the order? I don't know that it was at the conscious level, but I had had by then communications training as well. And I understood that to speak legalese wasn't what you needed to do if you wanted to communicate to the general public. And I made the conscious decision as a judge to determine that my communication was really directed to the general public. The lawyers, of course, would understand what I was saying, and they might be a little miffed that I wasn't speaking legalese, but the reality was I felt it was important that the public, those that were in front of me, be it jurors, defendants, um, calling a large docket, that they would understand what was going on. And that was really, if you want to put it into theater terms, my audience. You're the one that they're calling on to make sure that the rest of the class can kind of understand the content. And then you go on while you have two kids, you're 19, and you go ahead and go into community college. And what did you study there? Well, originally when I started in college, I intended to be a theater major or more specifically, my first choice was chemistry. Uh, <laughs> so the first couple of years of college, I took the traditional classes I needed to be a chemistry major, and that changed. You know, life happens. Uh, how my life happened at that point was that I moved to Colorado. I was going to school now during the day because the kids were in school themselves so I could take daytime classes. I was still married, but the marriage was very rough. We had tried to do a geographic cure. You're both family lawyers. So you probably understand that concept of geographically curing something. And when I got to school in Colorado, I was out of sync. So in Ohio, I was on a semester system. I came to Colorado. I was now suddenly on a quarter system in the school I was going to. I needed to continue with calculus and they couldn't decide whether I should go into second quarter calculus or third quarter calculus. I had gotten good grades in chemistry and calculus, but now I was in a totally different setting. And I took the second quarter of calculus, took my midterm, knew I didn't understand it, couldn't understand why I had done so well in Ohio in my calculus class and was now in my mind, failing the calculus class. So I decided to switch to mass comm and theater. I went into my calculus professor, Dr. Lee, and said, if you could only please see your way clear to give me a withdrawal passing, I would surely appreciate that. Tears, of course, in my eyes. I'm in my 20s. I'm failing marriage geographic here. I mean, there's a lot going on. And he looked at me so wide-eyed and he said, but you're one of my best students. <laughs> <laughs> were, Kathleen, were there a lot of other women in that class, that calculus class? There were a few, but not many. And when Dr. Lee said, you're one of my best students, I said, that cannot be. I know I just bombed this midterm. And he looked it up and he said, you're the third highest grade in the class. Why do you want to drop? And I said, because I don't understand. And was I the third highest grade a C or something like <laughs> in that calculus class? Was it so hard that? It was a 55 out of 100%. Oh my gosh. So and we can I thank said, Dr. Lee for pushing you towards, towards other things, towards the law. Yes. So I said, thank you very much. I guess I earned my WP withdrawal passing after all. Please give it to me. And I'm moving on to mass comm and theater. <laughs> so Dr. Lee did not change your mind. No. <laughs> Dr. Lee did not change my mind. So anyhow... Really quickly, I then transferred schools from uh, the school I was attending in Colorado to the University of Colorado Boulder. 
and discovered that at that point in time, CU did not have a live radio station or a live TV studio. And I had run into a fair amount of, now you would say discrimination, but I wasn't allowed to deal with any of the true equipment. I couldn't hang lights. I couldn't use the cameras. They just simply wanted me either on camera or using my voice in the mass comm department. So I fairly quickly switched to just a straight theater major, although I had basically minor hours in mass comm. And I finished my work at CU in Boulder. What was the best theater show you were in when you were in college? We did A Man for All Seasons, which is a show I still love. It was good. <laughs> and, and after finishing college, uh, I had a short stint as a private secretary. That's a whole nother story and we don't have time to go into it, but let me just say that that little uh, stint resulted in every woman in the office getting a raise. You, you can't lay that on us and not go into that story. <laughs> there's too, okay, well, there's too much to get through, but so I went, I had no secretarial experience. I went into this office. It was um, Northwestern National Mutual Life Insurance Company that's now shortened their name considerably. And I interviewed with the agent that did federal bonding. And he liked the fact that I had taken calculus. <laughs> he thought it might indicate that I was fairly intelligent. <laughs> and so he asked me what secretarial experience I had, and I said, absolutely none. Did you also say, but I had the third highest grade in my <laughs> calculus class? No, I don't think I did, but that's a long time ago, and I don't remember. He offered me the job, even though my uh, typing was about 40 minutes, uh, 40 words a minute, and lots of errors, and the fact that I didn't know how to use dictating equipment and the fact that I didn't know how to run a Xerox machine or anything. But he said to me, you're very smart. I know you're very smart. So I'm going to hire you, but you have to promise me this. You won't let anybody know that you don't have any experience. You will watch very carefully around you and figure out how to do all these things. I'm sure you'll figure it out. So I said, great, I'll try it. And I got the job and that's exactly what I did. However, on the first day of work, he was not present at the office and the head of the typing pool was, who was the senior most woman signed me up for payroll benefits and so on. And of course she found out what salary he had offered me. Now this is like 1974, I think. And it was $500. And I had said as a single parent, that's exactly what I need to barely get by with two kids. She signed me up. She saw what he had offered to pay me, realized I was going to be the third highest paid woman in the office. There was a typing pool of about 20. There were several other private secretaries and he had exceeded the the salary range he was supposed to give, but because he was so high up in the organization, they all lived with it. So she promptly went to the head of the office and said, if she's getting this amount of money, then we all need to get raises. Of course, she thought I was an experienced secretary. <laughs> After I left that position, uh, and I don't remember her last name, but Sue, I invited her out to the dinner theater where I was now working in management. And we had a nice visit and she told me how she really appreciated that everybody in the office got a raise because of me and because of the salary I had commanded. And I revealed to her that I had never ever worked as a secretary, it wasn't a trained secretary and told her the whole story. So that was kind of fun. You did have the third highest grade in calculus and you had the third highest salary at the firm. Correct. I know. I'm wondering if three is your lucky number. Well, maybe. I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> um, and I did 
I did work in, in management for dinner theaters for about two and a half years, loved it, but it was not a good job for a single parent because the higher up I got into management, the more it required work evenings and weekends, which is of course the exact time I needed to be with my children. And for a brief period while I was in St. Louis, uh, the children were with my parents in Ohio because there was no way I could uh, take care of them. I missed them terribly. I decided to transfer back to Denver and take a day job back with the same dinner theater group, but I had dead-ended my opportunities with the company. So I started to look for a career and I decided I wanted something that would be considered a profession. I had had numerous life experiences where I'd been exposed to the law. I've actually already mentioned two of those and there were several others. When I was uh, in my late teens, my paternal grandfather died and the family got embroiled in a family will contest. I had been through a dissolution of marriage while I was in college, I was the victim of a serious crime. That case was prosecuted. It went to trial, and I actually testified during the tri jury trial. Uh, I did have a victim advocate. I had had that experience. That was quite early for victim advocates being used, but the um, district attorney's office, fortunately for me, was very uh, ahead of its time. And of course, I had been working with lawyers as a general manager of the Goldenrod Showboat. So all that experience with law meant that when I was looking for where I might land to take on a profession, I decided to go to law school. That doesn't sound like the easiest option that you had. I, I never want, was one for picking easy uh, things, I guess. I like challenge and I seem to manage in my life to, uh, for whatever reason, take on challenges. You, you also yeah. seem to be able to find a way to complete those challenges, despite how difficult it might be. Well, I think one key to that is just trying to take it one step at a time. So instead of saying, okay, I'm going to finish this, 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 you say, if I can finish this class, then I can move on. And I did try to look at it in smaller, more manageable pieces. So why law? Well, I realized that law would be interesting, that I wouldn't get bored, that it wouldn't be the same thing day after day, that it would be challenging, that it was a career where I could truly help people. I already had a passion for social justice and realized the importance of the rule of law. I also realized it was a career where I could hopefully earn enough money to support my family. As I said earlier, I was the sole breadwinner for the family. And I thought if I could get into law school, I could complete law school. I applied to the University of Colorado Boulder and was accepted and attended as a single parent. And so did you still have just the two children at that point? I did. And what was the composition of your law school class? Well, I, it, my class was approximately 150, and I think there were 47 women that started in the class. The um, breaking point for women starting to get into law school in num some significant numbers was just a couple years before me at CU Law. If you go to the CU Law School, they have uh, pictures of all the graduating classes and you can look and about three to five years before me, there were maybe 10 women in the law school class. My class was 47 women. Wow, that's incredible to, to come from all these different challenges and then here you're sitting in law school class, no more calculus. You don't have to do calculus as a lawyer, right? Right. <laughs> Math skills are really helpful as a lawyer, I will say. <laughs> well, they are helpful. It doesn't mean that most lawyers understand how they work. And I would also say that calculators are very helpful. <laughs> That's true. So, so, so what did you love about law school? Well, let me tell you a little story, if I can, about orientation at law school, because this was a bit of a shocker. We had, law, we had uh, orientation, and the two things that were the most shocking to me 
were that at orientation, one of the speakers got up and welcomed us all and then said, and it was a he, he hoped that women in the class were serious about practicing law and not there to find a husband, as there were at least 10 applicants for each spot in the class. That really took me back. <laughs> and the other thing that took me back is that it was just before the Labor Day weekend and the number of pages of assignments that were given over the Labor Day weekend of reading was amazing. I, of course, had intended originally to go to law school to get into entertainment and media law. That obviously didn't happen. <laughs> so, so rarely does someone end up in the goal spot for law. They end up, you know, the environmental lawyer becomes the criminal <laughs> lawyer. The criminal lawyer becomes the corporate lawyer. And I frankly found law school very hard. It was hard being a single parent and being in law school. I have course was used to getting very good grades and being right at the top of the class but now you're with your truly contemporaries intellectually so it was much more difficult to excel. I frankly lost a lot of confidence in myself during law school so in general I found law school very difficult well, it seems like, and just venturing a guess, law would be very, very different than the arts such as mass communication and theater. Did you feel like any of your arts background helped in preparing you for law school or not so much? No, more life, life experiences more than uh, formal classwork probably prepared me more. I felt very unprepared for law school. I had never taken any kind of pre-law class, any business law class, any theater law class, anything that would give me a clue what to expect in law school. And I very naively did not read up on what to expect in law school. So I really was very unprepared for what I found. How did you balance, you mentioned the, the crushing reading assignments and you've got two kids at home and you're trying to manage that. Plus there's also probably extracurricular study groups or moot court or different things that you're participating in. How were you able to do that? Because kids don't generally stop because you tell them to sit down while you concentrate for the next three hours. Well, I did a few things. First of all, I didn't join any study groups. One of the shockers about law school was you had, okay, this is how naive I was, that you had case law in books and you needed a law library because of course this is before computers. And how did I deal with the kids at home? Well, one trick I learned, I learned that if I was exhausted, I would go to sleep with the kids early, eight or nine set the alarm for midnight or one, get up and study in the middle of the night for three or four hours, go back to bed, catch another couple hours of sleep, get up with the kids. And that is how I did a fair amount of studying through both undergrad and law school. That is funny that you just set out that schedule because that's exactly what I was doing last night, filing an emergency motion to restrict. <laughs> I went to bed with my kid at 8.30, got up at midnight, worked for three and a half hours, and then went back to bed for a couple of hours before you woke up. <laughs> good for you. It's a good trick. I mean, it, <laughs> it worked. Making it work. Yep. Making it work. Well, and so Kathleen, when you graduated from law school then, where did you practice first? After law school, as I said, I had lost a lot of confidence myself. I had thought I would immediately go out and hunt for a job in uh, entertainment law and the media law, but I had two issues really, some loss of confidence and the fact that I needed to start earning a living. So I decided that once I passed the bar exam, I would try to find a job quickly and that I would try to build my confidence back up and then look for my dream job in entertainment and media law. I had done uh, in law school the legal aid and defender clinic 
and the Legal Aid Civil Clinic. So I had had some courtroom work, the um, speech and theater and communications background does transfer very well to the courtroom and public being in front of the public. So uh, I had really enjoyed those experiences. In those days, jobs were often posted on the bulletin board at the law school. And I would look at the bulletin board for job opportunities. And I saw a couple in Pueblo, one an assistant county attorney and one a deputy district attorney. And I decided to apply for those jobs. I was actually offered both of them, but uh, I decided to take the deputy DA, DA job and I moved to Pueblo in the fall of 1979 with every intent of being there for a couple of years and then moving on. And, uh, and where do you live right now, Kathleen? <laughs> I'm still in Pueblo, Courtney. <laughs> <laughs> and so you actually had a, a pretty illustrious career in, in Pueblo. I, I think that I've heard that you were um, the first woman partner in one of the leading law firms in Pueblo, and then you were eventually appointed as a county court judge in Pueblo. Tell us a little more about what that was like. That is correct, and I would be glad to do that, but I want to backtrack just to give a little historic perspective. So when I moved to Pueblo uh, and started work, in 1979, there were only eight other women lawyers in town. I think I was the ninth one to arrive. And there were probably at least 150 men who were lawyers practicing in town. I do want to point out that nine is a multiple of three. <laughs> all right, you, you all are making me think about this three thing. <laughs> three to the second power. Yeah, right. You're right. So, so that's a pretty Jill. impressive, so you're one of the, the first group of women that are really changing the face of the law in Pueblo, and then you're doing it from the bench and, and seeing all of these self-represented parties and attorneys appearing in front of you. Tell us a little bit about what that felt like. I uh, practiced in Pueblo almost 16 years before I got onto the bench, so I felt very comfortable in the legal community here. Overall, it had been very welcoming, and even though I might have not have put the word mentor on my relationship with a variety of the lawyers in town, looking back, they were certainly mentoring me. What was it like to be on the bench? Well, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the position of being the neutral. I enjoyed listening. I enjoyed watching. Uh, I felt like it was a position where I could do good for uh, a large number of people. I, I don't even know how to explain it, but the courtroom is a fascinating place to be. And if you love the courtroom, the, probably the best job in the courtroom is the judge position. So we've heard about just these monumental challenges that you faced, to be honest with you, from, you know, going, um, dropping out of high school, having a teenage pregnancy, doing night school to finish high school, two kids, college, undergrad, transferring, showboating, <laughs> going to law school. Uh, who, who are you now? That's a good question. Well, I'm a, a retired judge. Uh, felt like that was a wonderful career. I did the bench in Pueblo for 15 and a half years. I was then called in by the city of Pueblo when they needed to have someone cover municipal court interimly. I uh, worked in municipal court. So my most recent stint on the bench would have been December of 2016. I did municipal court for roughly four years. Now I am the immediate past president of the Colorado Bar Association, which has consumed a lot of my time during the last three years, almost three years. I'm still an officer of the Bar Association for a bit until July 1st of this year. 
And for your knowledge, you were not the third, but you were the fifth female president of the CBA. Sixth. You were sixth? Pretty okay, sure. I'll trust you on that number, which is again, a, mul a, a multiple of three, so. <laughs> I believe I'm the sixth woman. I've stood in front of the wall of presidents and counted and I'm pretty sure I'm the sixth. And this is amazing. Okay, I'm going to look at my life quite differently after talking about <laughs> three and multiples of three. I feel like we're going to make you become superstitious. <laughs> if I buy a lottery ticket, which I don't normally buy, I will make sure there are multiples of three. Three, six, nine, 27, <laughs> get all those in there. You'll probably 21. win. Oh, okay. And my birthday is the 21st of a month. Well, hey, hey, three what times have we seven. Discovered? Well, let's talk about that for a second with your CBA involvement. That's a lot of time commitment. And you did a lot of things for the Colorado Bar Association that focused on greater Colorado and community some, somewhat development. Why was that so important? I had been an officer of the Pueblo County Bar Association. I had had uh, various roles on the Board of Governors with the CBA. I had been a regional vice president of the CBA. And I, over the years, had learned the incredible value of the CBA and being a member of the CBA. But I also knew as a past president of the CBA that I had exactly two communications with CBA during my presidential year. And I felt that the local bars had a lot to offer to CBA and CBA had a lot to offer to local bars. The um, strategic plan for the CBA included a plan for trying to do a better job of engaging in my friendly amendment serving the attorneys in the state with an emphasis on those who are traditionally or who have been traditionally underserved. So that included the DEI movement or EDI movement, the equity, diversity and inclusivity movement and it included statewide and the CBA seemed in my opinion, to not do a very good job outside the metro area. As president, I therefore in, embraced the engaging and serving all attorneys goal. And I also in, uh, embraced the goal of doing a better job of utilizing and serving new and young attorneys. And those were the two focuses of my presidential year. Kathleen, how many miles do you think you drove serving as either president of the Colorado Bar Association, immediate past president, or president-elect? I'm guessing for the president-elect position and the presidential position, well over 8,000 miles around up and down I-25 and around the state my presidential year changed dramatically on March 16th of 2020 when the COVID pandemic shut everything down and we all chose to go virtual. So the last part of my presidential year and my year as immediate past president has been done virtually. But the wonderful news about that is we've all learned how well we can function virtually attending meetings. It will open things up for people around the state to participate. It will make it much easier to engage. That's a really good point. And that's also, it seemed to be a saving grace. I know that you have a certain love of one type of car. Oh, you've, you, that's because you've <laughs> been in cars with me and you have the love for the same car that I do. And that would be Lexus. And my love for Lexus really arises from a son because one of the sons uh, worked for Toyota for several years as a district manager in Ohio. And um, we were blessed to be able to get family pricing for Lexuses. Then I got hooked. 
Well, and you have, how many of the same car do you have? <laughs> I'm on my fourth Lexus. I have three outside, which is a bit ridiculous because there are only two drivers in the house, but we have a spare just in case. Uh, I remember I've, getting I've... <laughs> in Kathleen's car and saying, oh, I have, and at the time I was driving a 2007 Lexus SUV rx350 and i said oh i have the same car and she leaned over and said oh don't worry have more of these at home <laughs> oh i love that you have one for backup <laughs> well it's it's really part of the having a large and wonderful family extended family piece of life that if you are in a position you can do it why not we buy, we tend to buy our cars and drive them until they drop. So we just traded in our um, 1999 Lexus two years ago to get a uh, 2019 Lexus. So it's not that we're running out and changing cars every day either. They're very reliable. I could do a Lexus commercial. And just saying, you have three of them. You may just have done an Alexis commercial right here. Tell us a little more about the ghost walk in Pueblo. Well, actually, I'm retired from the ghost walk at this point, but I am the founder of the ghost walk. It started in 20, I think, 04 uh, as a fundraising event for the Pueblo Community Domestic Violence Task Force. I was a member of that during the entire time, almost the entire time I was on the county court bench as a representative. And in the early 2000s, they were looking for a fundraising event and they wanted something different. I had gone on a ghost tour in Charleston, South Carolina when I was on a vacation, loved it, didn't particularly like the idea of hauntings, but did like the format and with my husband had discussed that with some uh, tweaking, uh, we, it would be a wonderful fundraising event someday when I was retired, when the DV task force was asking what about a fundraiser, I said, hey, I have this idea for you. It's gonna be a lot of work. It's going to require a lot of people. What do you think? And of course, much to my amazement, they said, sure, we'll go for it. So it's a historical walk uh, in the historic area and the Riverwalk area of Pueblo. It, doesn't really talk about ghosts most of the time, although I think the current um, team that puts it on is a little more into hauntings. I did it for 12 years. I um, founded it, produced it in my spare time, because of course, if you know, in 2004, I was still on the bench. I had to be very behind the scenes because I couldn't use my judge title for anything. Put together a team, figured out how to produce this event. It's a walking tour with stories placed along the route. They're told about various aspects of Pueblo's amazing history. Uh, people don't always know it, but in Pueblo uh, were such notables in Western history as Doc Holliday and Bat Masterson, Charles Goodnight. Cuerna Verde is an interesting story that we've told about um, a battle early on in this area between the Spanish and the natives. There was a massacre at Fort El Pueblo. We've told that story. One of my favorites is a historic uh, story about the great flood. Pueblo had a great flood in 1929. I mean, 29, 1921, sorry. This is the 100th anniversary and this year's ghost walk. I just ran into the woman who took over my job as producer and they're going to focus the whole ghost walk this fall on the um, flood. Hmm. The other interesting thing about Pueblo that most people don't know is it was an international boundary line. I did not know that. What I did not know that either. Okay, well, the Arkansas River runs through Pueblo. And if you were here in the very late 
1700s. I'm going to give you how I tell people when I docent the ghost walk. We're on so the I, tour right now, Nicole. Here we go. We're on the tour. I know. So we're at the bridge <laughs> and there are flags over the Arkansas and I'm explaining in the flags. And I say, if you were here in the very late 1700s and you were on the north side of the Arkansas, you would be in French territory. And if you were on the south side of the Arkansas, you would be in Spanish territory. In whatever, 1803, I think, 1804, the Louisiana Purchase occurred. And the boundary, the southern boundary of the Louisiana Purchase was the Arkansas River in this area of the, of the country. So after the Louisiana Purchase, you would have been US or Spain. Eventually, of course, Spain, it became Mexico. So the Arkansas at one point in history was the northern boundary of Mexico. And oh, by the way, at one point, the Republic of Texas claimed part of this land. And then I try to always end up the story saying, and whose land was it really? And people kind of look and sometimes they get it right. And I'm like, both sides of the river really were land of the Native Americans. That's a really, that's a really powerful moment for people to think about and to realize how much history is here. And, and you'll find no surprise that it was in fact 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase given your love of the number three. But tell <laughs> us a little bit, you know, we've got to wrap up here shortly, but we, we've heard a little bit about your incredible life, who you were, who you are. And obviously you have a passion for people. You have a, a true passion for the law. You have a passion for theater. Tell us what's in store for you in the future here. Well, I'm really planning on the following. I want to focus on home and hearth. Uh, I'm a happily married woman. It took three tries, but I've been married to the same wonderful man for almost 34 years. Now it's not three, three. Well, it is three, three right now until our wedding anniversary. Actually, you're right. Okay. 33 years, almost 34. Um, we have, okay, 13 grandchildren. Mm -hmm. we, we have, uh, okay, we, the numbers don't quite jive. We have a blended family of seven children. We have 13 grandchildren. We have a great grandchild on the way. So home and hearth, I really want to get back to traveling because I love to travel. We've had, fortunately, six wonderful foreign exchange students from Italy, Germany, Russia, and Tajikistan. And so I want to get back to Europe to see my European and Asian children. And now they have, some of them have children. I do intend to continue with the CBA in the work to engage and serve attorneys all over the state, including continuing work with the DEI. I never know whether it's DEI, EDI, or we keep changing, but anyhow, equity, diversity, and inclusivity. I think EDI is where <laughs> we are these days. I don't think it matters what you call it as long as we all keep changing. Yeah. And so I want to keep working on that. I am passionate about the profession of law. It's a noble profession. It gave me a career. It lived up to all my hopes when I picked it and so much more. I want to give back and I want to remind us all that being lawyers, we truly are the guardians of the rule of law, which is incredibly important for all of us, our country, our fellow citizens, everyone. That's a really, that's a really good point. And a lot of times people lose sight of the importance that lawyers function in the community. And that um, being the, I think you called it the guardians of the rule of law. That's, that's something that we can all take with us. And we're just so appreciative of the time that you spent with us and sharing your stories and and just a brief part of your history with us today, Kathleen. Um, thank you so much for your time and, and your wisdom. Well, thank you for having me. 
Nicole, Courtney, hopefully some of this, we tell our stories for a reason. I think we tell our stories and I'm a storyteller. Well, in part why I do the ghost walk, but we still tell our stories to hopefully educate, to inspire, to emphasize our commonality, that we are more alike each other than we are different, to help us understand the human condition and hopefully to allow us to dream. That's beautiful. I, I really love that. Well, thank you again, Kathleen. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for joining us. Um, I know I've really enjoyed learning more about you and, you know, hearing your stories and having you share with us your walk and your path. And, you know, it obviously hasn't always been easy and it has had a lot of obstacles along the way, but certainly (laughs) you definitely have come out on top in the end. And it's very admirable, everything that that you've done. So thank you from the CBA, from the legal community, from I'm sure everyone in Pueblo with the historical ghost walk, all the work that you've done for Pueblo domestic violence, community task force, all of the work you've put in. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McGarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. Thank you.